My new book is now available. It's called Peace Over Pain: How to Eliminate Chronic Pain and or Chronic Illness so you can break free from the medical monopoly. If you want it instantly, you can get the ebook and audiobook together as a package on peaceoverpain.com. And of course, the paperback is available on Amazon right now. Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. What's it like to watch death slowly? Welcome to episode number 139. Today, I'm bringing back Keisha Rowe. She's a veteran hospice nurse. I wanted to bring her back so we can explore and get really close to death. She's gotten permission to share some incredible stories and experiences that she's been involved with in this line of work. I feel this is a very important episode. So sit down. Relax. And take in this beautiful and valuable recording. Let's begin. Keisha, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, how are you? <laughs> so yesterday I texted you and you were like, "Hold on a second. I got to do a pronouncement." Mm-hmm. And it's like that's something you don't hear from another human being very often. <laughs> and of course, you're referring to you had to call the death. Yes. Of another human being because you're working in hospice, right? Correct. So what was that like yesterday? You know, just had to give a lot of support to the family. It wasn't my patient that I had to pronounce, actually. It was someone else's patient that I had to pronounce, but I was just in the area close by, so I was able to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it it makes it hard when you don't know the family, Mm -hmm. uh, but you still can give the same empathy and the same kind of support and comfort for the family. But but they did require a lot of support. Um, They, this family actually had a really hard time coming to terms with, um, their family, um, passing away. So. Why? Because in my mind, I'm like, death happens. Mm-hmm. You've certainly seen enough of it. Yes. But what do you mean that they have trouble coming to terms? Are they in denial? They're in denial. A, a lot, um, a lot of them, a lot of, you have a lot of patient family members that don't, um, even though the, fa- the the patient themselves have already accepted um, their prognosis or accepted their, that they're going to die, um, a lot of the family members do not accept that the death is coming, the death is near, or even the death even happened, which is what um, transpired yesterday. Um, it was a, the family, just some family members were just like, no, you know, check the pulse again or check this again, you know, um, they, they didn't even want me to even take the oxygen off, um, either. So. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It just, it takes a lot of just a lot of 
hand-holding, you know, okay. and talking to them and, you know, and, and everything and kind of like just explaining to them that they're, you know, no longer suffering. I know that we selfishly want them to stay here, you know, and we want them to be here, you know, for us and be here with us, you know, however, you know, this is, this was their time and, you know, we have no control over this. Mm. You know, there's, there's no playbook in this. There's no playbook on how, and there's no playbook on how people are going to react or there's no playbook on how people are going to cope with um, their loved one dying either. You know, it's just kind of like you, you, you just take the, you, you actually just meet people where they are in their grieving process. So. Sounds very dramatic. It can be at times. And, and, you, ha- and you have to do this all the time. Yes. I have to do it all the time. Sometimes, you know, you have families that are accepting of it. Um, I think sometimes it, 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 it helps more when the patient has accepted um, when the patient is alert and oriented and has accepted it, uh, accepted of it, but you have, I have patients that aren't alert and oriented, like my patients that have dementia, you know, they're not alert and oriented, you know, they, they, you know, so the family is, is making all the decisions, not them making the decisions for them. And so it's kind of, it, it makes it difficult sometimes when the family has not accepted the death and dying mm-hmm. process thing. So for, for those that may recognize your voice, you were on the first 12 episodes of this podcast. Yes. Just two over two years ago now. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you were engaging along with Tina in conversations with me. And so here we are again. And I remember one of those conversations that we had, you told me or the audience about a situation where this woman died so peacefully and she like, totally accept she was totally in acceptance of it yes and it was like this beautiful process it was it was I had never seen anything like it before um she had she was my patient this was prior to the company that I work for now she was so accepting of it um it was it was so beautiful she um she did a lot of yoga and meditation in her and mm-hmm. her um time before and um the daughters were saying she doesn't want to be medicated she wants to feel it all she wants to feel it yeah and um you know and at that time when I was a hospice nurse then I couldn't in my head I couldn't understand that I couldn't wrap my head around him like why doesn't why doesn't she want the morphine why doesn't she want the Advil? why does she want this you know this is that's the things that we use to keep our patients comfortable when they are actively or actively dying or transitioning as we call it transitioning and um I had never seen anyone pass away that way so peacefully no meds just all she kept doing was breathing through the entire time just taking all these deep breaths and I didn't interrupt her I just sat beside her and just sat there with her didn't didn't speak to her because she told, she actually told her family, don't talk to her when she's going through this process because she asked them to say everything that they needed to say to her before she goes under, mm-hmm. I guess, in her tra- in her transition. And um, that morning, she was just breathing very peacefully, very deep breathing, like a lot of deep breathing. And it was, 
then all of a sudden, you know, you could see the breaths getting slower and slower. And then she was gone. Mm. No, and I didn't see any, in, in a lot of cases that I, that I see, you see a lot of people having respiratory, elevated respi- respirations, pulses elevated. Um, what, because of anxiety? Yeah, anxiety. Yeah, and because of, sometimes it could be also because of pain as well. Um, whether she had pain or not, she, the type of condition she was in, she should have had pain, but she didn't show it. Her, all everything was, her vitals were normal. They were, they were normal. Um, I, I, the only thing I took was a heart rate and her respirations and that was it. And her heart rate, you know, throughout the process, you know, it, it'll, you'll see it, you know, slowing down a little bit, you know, but just, just in her breathing was slowing too, but never was, never did she show any signs of distress. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a role model. Yeah, definitely. If I'm going to die, that's how I want <laughs> That's right. how I want to die. And that's, that's, that's why it's so important to practice meditation that's how I rationalized getting into meditation in the first place. Okay. 13, 14 years ago, maybe even like I remember rationalizing as this would be a great skill to have when my time comes. Mm -hmm. And, and here I am all these years later doing all this practice and doing this podcast. And I I can definitely say that that my, my little download was correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if we don't practice how to die, which is meditation, then we're either going to go very painfully or very scared. Yes. Yes. And, and you do have people that they are afraid or they are, um, they say that they're not afraid, but you do sense the anxiety, but most of the time they're, it's not that they're afraid of dying. They're afraid of the people that they're leaving behind. They're afraid right. for them. Right. Um, they have anxiety about um, about what's going to happen to the people when I pass, and which is why I always talk to the families and tell them, you know, when I have a good rapport with them, I say to them, you know, um, let him or her know that it's okay that you're going to be okay. Mm. It doesn't mean that you don't have to mean it, you know, cause we know that it, you know, you're going to go through these ups and downs, but I have to also talk to the family and say to them, but you are going to be okay. Like I, I had this, I have to, they be like, I'm not going to be okay though. I can't tell her if I'm not. And I'm like, yes, you can, because you are going to be okay. Eventually you will be okay. Sure. Yeah. Everywhere we look, especially in the social media era, there's death. Mm-hmm. This person's mother died. This person's aunt died. This person's right. uncle died. And it's just, if you scroll through your Instagram or Facebook enough, you're going to run into it almost every day. Every day. It's a topic I talk about in my new book mm-hmm. where if life is a school, death is your final exam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to fail. Right. Because if you're passing, okay, the word passing comes from, you, your spirit or soul leaving your body. It's a passing, right? right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to quote unquote pass in fear 
right and anxiety mm-hmm. you want to pass away in joyfulness and peacefulness right. just like this woman that you talked about a few minutes ago mm-hmm. that's what we want that's the final exam yeah i know that um i wasn't there for my dad's passing my sister actually was and she her reaction to it was she she cried but it was like a cry of joy for her because she said she kept saying you should have seen it it was so beautiful that's all she kept saying it was so beautiful because wow. she said you kind of the person that that sees it happening it's it kind of like and I think you have to be connected to it in order for you to like really see it and understand there's some kind of light that happens yes. it's like it's like um their face, their eyes, everything just gets bright. Like it's like a light. It's like almost like an aura, I guess mm-hmm. you see around this person. And I don't, I are, I know when it's happening. Like I, I know when the passing is happening because I can see that light. Mm-hmm. I can see that, that, and it's not like a, it's not a literal light, but it's just like, you know, you, you can't, I can't explain it, but it's just, you, I know it's happening. And I was, because it happened with my grandmother. I was there for my grandmother's passing and I said it, I said, I was, I called everyone into the room. I said, she's, I said, everybody, she's passing. She's transitioning over. Everybody came running into the room, you know, and I could see it. And then even like my family was like, how did you know? How did you know it was happening? I said, I can't explain it. I just know. I just know. You just, you just see this. It's just this light you see. And everyone has it. Everyone, everyone, it happens to everyone. Yeah. Every passing that I've seen, that I've always seen, that I've always witnessed, and I was there for it, you, I always see that light, and I always know that it's happening. Right. Do you feel like being around so much death actually positively affects your life? Or When I first became a hospice nurse, no. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't. It was like very depressing, but I was just doing it um because at the time it was a it was a nursing job I was gonna do it you know but then I started really getting into it and um but every time I every time I leave hospice I always come back I always go back to it because it's 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 not it's not anything that I chose hospice chose me I didn't choose hospice Mm -hmm. um so now it now because I'm in it now I'm not afraid of death right and that's the first time i've ever like said that out loud nice i'm not afraid <laughs> i'm not afraid of dying you know my my only things is just worries about my family and and me leaving the same as other, right. like you know as everyone else but as far as dying i'm not afraid to die we're born to die yeah it's not like i'm gonna be going out there doing stuff reckless because i'm like oh yeah i'm free i'm not right, i'm not right. afraid of death you know, it's not that. It's just more like, you know, it's my time. It's my time. And I'm smiling about it. <laughs> I'm smiling about it because it's like, it's almost like, I'm like, again, I'm worried about my family and I'm worried about, you know, how people are going to be. But it's almost, it's almost like you like, I can't wait to die. But yeah. in a smiling way, yeah. you know, like, not like not and I'm in and, and people may look at it like oh she's depressed she has no it's not that is is it's just getting to that side 
that yeah. other side so that I can live. All right. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago, I was holding a newborn in my arms. Oh. A buddy of mine had a baby. Mm-hmm. And I'm holding the child. It's got to be like three weeks old, you know, small head bobbling all over the place. And I'm just. Were you, looking... were you properly supporting the head? Yes. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at this little baby and I'm like, you're going to have to die. Mm. Like this little child is going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully not to her eighties or nineties, but you know, yeah. it's like the journey has begun. Yep. And it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And it's the only guarantee. Yep. And there's it something, is. there's something to be said about that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm reminded of the story of Socrates, who, you know, he was convicted by the government and sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. You know, similar situation as Jesus. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, they did poison. Mm-hmm. And the night before, his disciples all got together and they figured out a way how to break him out of the jail. And he declined. Mm. He said, I'm good. I'm ready to right. die. Mm-hmm. And the next day, they injected the poison. And, you know, it's a slow, slow process. And he was like very mindful. Mm-hmm. And he was observing his feet and his legs. And then his torso and you know like he was like oh this is like he was he had a curious he had a curiosity about it Mm -hmm. he was ready yeah and i feel like if we all take that approach just like the woman you talked about Mm -hmm. this can be a really beautiful thing yeah yeah and i think part of it too she um it's cultural with some patients and families that I have. Um, definitely culture plays a huge part in um, the death and dying process and accepting um, them going through all the different stages of grief with bargaining and denial and sadness and acceptance. I mean, it, they go back and forth. No one really stays in the grieving process, you know, no one grieves at the same time. And sometimes you go through, you go through several stages of grief at different times. You could be accepting and then go back down to like grieving again, you know? Right. So it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's, you know, it, it's, it's cultural. I definitely see that it's cultural or what their upbringing was um, in, in accepting the death and dying process and, you know, in the steps and everything. But, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm like, um, the person here for them to, right. to show them that whatever feelings that they're having, as far as the family goes, whatever feelings that they're having is all normal. The feelings yeah. that they're having is normal, are normal. Yeah. I know there are not going to be people around that are going to be like, oh, they're, ex-, you know, they're going to always accept it. You know, you're not going to always have those people. Um, and, you know, those can be difficult cases, but, you know, I, I find myself that I'm able to work through them with the with the families Mm. and um eventually they get there you know and sometimes I don't see the case through I have you know if if sometimes I don't I'm unable to see the case all the way follow through because I'm not the primary case manager um on some of the cases but later on I find out oh you know they're they're starting their bereavement um 
classes. They're going to, you know, classes with, you know, dealing with loss and everything. Um, but, you know, it's because you they haven't accepted that, you know. Um, they know that the person is gone, but it's very hard for them to work through sometimes the, the grief. Sure. There's yeah. a bond. A bond. Right. Been, yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me a story that stands out. You know what's so funny? The story that I'm about to tell you is the story that made me quit hospice the first time. <laughs> right. This is your second stint. Yeah. So um, so the the call that I received was that he was having uncontrolled symptoms and he was at home at the time. If he was at home not in a facility. I don't worry so much about patients when they're in the facility because there's always someone there to take care of them. You know, especially in the daytime, if certain things going on, you're able to get the APRN, but you're also able to get the on-call MD, you know, at nighttime as well. However, when they're at home, it's not like that. It's the family who is taking care of their loved ones. So with that being said, I, was, I had this one patient and military family, everybody was military. So I can, you could just, I'm just trying to put that personality out there. Um, military family, they very strong. The, the patient was very stoic, just, you know, um, but he was having um, uncontrolled symptoms. And I walked into the room and you can hear the respiratory stuff going on. It was like all of the um, secretions and it was just a lot of loud breathing in the room. And he had so much anxiety and he was just like all over the place. Like it was like, as he could be, he could crawl out of his skin if he, if he needed to, okay. but it's, it's as if he like, he was reaching and grabbing because he couldn't take what was happening to his body at the time. Was it a psychological response or was it physical? It's psychological, it's right? Psychological and physical response okay. Okay. to, because when you start fit, so when he start, you feel something physical, you get scared. So now it's in your mind. So now it makes the symptoms worse with what's happening to you because you can't control what is going on. And if you're someone, and the reason why I explained to you that he was in a military background, he, he's in the military, you know, of military men, they're strong men, you know, they can take anything. So we, you know, so you think, but then this situation, it was just like, he had no control, like none about what was happening to him. And what was happening to him was that he was having a flash pulmonary edema. Okay. He's filling up with water. Yes. And so hmm. when you, anyone knows in the medical field, usually when they have this happening, it should, it should be dealt with in the hospital um, because it's, it's, a, it's a very um, uncomfortable um, needing, meaning them needing a bunch of medications to keep them, you know, comfortable, like morphine and Advent, just, you know, a lot of stuff. So now we're at home dealing with all of this. The only thing you have is sublingual medication, um, trying to combat this. And no matter what I did, no matter how much I was hitting him with, 
it wasn't doing anything. Mm -hmm. So, but something in me told me, pick him up like as if he's a baby and cradle him in your arms. So he was laying on the bed. So I just kind of scooped him up and brought him close to my chest. And I kept rocking with him. And then he actually grabbed me around my waist. Mm. And as he did that, I could feel him. I could feel him dying in my arms. Yeah. Um, I could feel, it was almost if I could feel his soul, like move away. Yes. It like separated from his body. I can feel it separate from his body. It was like, I could feel it pull through my hands. Like, cause I had, I was holding him like this, but I can feel like this rush pulling through my hands and my arms. And he passed away in my arms. Mm. Yeah. With his family around the bed with me. His, his entire family was on the bed with me. And um, when he passed away, when he was gone, I laid him down back on the bed. And I told them, you know, that he was gone. And the wife said to me, how did you know that he was religious? I said, what? <laughs> She's like, how do you know he was religious? I said, what do you mean? She was like, you were praying the entire time. I don't remember that. Mm. I don't remember the prayer. I don't remember anything. I don't remember what I said. All I remember is holding him and feeling that pull. So, so here's how I'm interpreting it. I, mm -hmm. It sounds like two instincts coming together, his and yours, mm -hmm. because we all have this inner child. Mm -hmm. and it gets scared and he was scared mm -hmm. and you holding him it was equivalent to his mom a mother holding the, a baby mm -hmm. and so like a motherly instinct you know and that's what it sounds like to me and yeah you know, o Osho says in his book, The Art of Living and Dying, that he says you're fortunate if you're in the room with somebody dying. Mm -hmm. And well, I, then that means I'm fortunate all the time because <laughs> right in this experience that you're that <laughs> yeah. you're that you're talking about right now is mm -hmm. is one of those type of situations. He, he, he calmed down when you did that, right? Yeah, he, he completely calmed down when yeah. I did that. Right. He just held, he held on to me. He did, it wasn't like he had a good, he didn't have like a tight grip on me. It was more like a relief that someone was holding him. But at that same moment, you know, after I finished, you know, and I put him back down in the bed, you know, I, you know, I said, I, you know, I told the family my condolences and I'm sorry. And then I walked out of the room because I wanted them to have their time, but I needed my time. Oh, <laughs> I, bet, I, bet. I walked out the room, walked outside, got in my car, called my boss. And I was like, 
I'm quitting right now. I'm going to quit. <laughs> wow. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. You know, I, could, I, was, I was crying and stuff because I didn't, I couldn't explain what happened to me, you know? And I mean, I knew what happened to him. He died, you know, but the, it was the experience I couldn't explain. And I, I think I was, I, I thought about him for weeks, like after that. And I still think about him from time to time. I think about the moments um, that happened, but I, at least in those moments, now when I think about him is not, I'm going to quit. It was like, it's more like I'm relieved that I was there for him. Yeah. And I'm happy that I was the one that was there for him. Cause I don't know if, cause even one of the nurses that was, um, that I had discussed this with, she said, I don't know if I could have done that. Uh, she was like, he, he's, he needed you there that night. Yeah. Yeah. That's heavy. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Can you share another one? Yes. Um, there's many, I would imagine. There's many, many stories. Um, patient in a facility, actively dying, patient, obvious signs of distress and the daughter refusing to provide any type of comfort for her mom. What is it? What do you mean? Um, death and dying without meds. But this is me. I'm, I was taught meds. Give them meds. Start them every hour on meds. Um, the mom was actively dying. She had secretions. She would only allow us to put the oxygen on. But she obviously was in a lot of distress. I, I, the daughter was just like so like stubborn. She did not want to give meds at all. And she just kept saying, nope, I'm just, I'm not. But, but not only was she not giving meds, but she wasn't providing like the comfort for her mom. She wasn't sitting at her mom's bedside and holding her hand or, you know, or trying to walk her through it, you know, or trying to talk her through it. She wasn't doing any of that. She just was like, just pacing back and forth just watching her just going through the dying process. There was no tenderness. Right. There was no tenderness and no empathy or no. And then when she passed, it was like, she almost celebrated it. But then I realized to me at that point, I thought she was being heartless. You know, how are you celebrating your mom's death? Like, what are you doing? You know, that's how I felt. But she said, I'm not celebrating my mom's death. I'm celebrating her life. Hmm. In my mind, I was so angry with her, you know, like I couldn't even, I couldn't even hear it, you know? And I walked away from it. And then one of my nurse friends said to me, she said, you cannot be angry with the way she start with the way she decided to do her plan. This was the, this is the plan she had in place for her mother. She wanted her mother to die naturally. Hmm. And I said, but sure, but she didn't die peacefully. She was like, who, how do you know she didn't die peacefully? She said, were you there? Are you in? She said, wait, she said, you were there. She said, but you weren't in her body. So you don't know what was going on with her. You know, I mean, obviously respiratory symptoms when they're, you know, breathing heavy, it's not comfortable, but 
we're also taught that there's certain things that they're not even aware of when they're going through the transition. So who knows if they're even aware of their respirations elevating during this time? Well, is it possible that the mother and daughter talked about it in advance? It could have been, but no one will, we will never know because that wasn't disclosed to us. So when people, I just, I just thought that she was, I just thought in my mind that this, here's this heartless daughter like when when people die are is the lungs the last to go no it's um it's actually a lot of people die from kidney failure right it's actually your hearing that goes last oh wow you can hear which is why to go back to my first story of my lady she told him don't talk to her while she while she was transitioning because she wanted to be focused because you can hear you your your hearing is your last thing to go when you die hmm they can hear everything that's happening and what's going on. But it sounds like the breathing is the. It, the breathing is just a, just a symptom that happens. Like if they're having any type of respiratory issues and things, it's just your body going into, because your body goes into like a fight or flight mode because the brain is the brain. The brain is trying to, the brain is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's trying to compensate because your brain is meant for you, for it to keep you alive. Your brain is the one that works everything, you know, in your body. It, it's the one that controls. It's the central ner- It's the central nervous system. It's the one that controls everything that's in your body to work. So the woman you told me about the first story with her breathing and her meditation, she got her mind to calm down. Yep. She told her brain this is how we're going to work. You know, we're not going to, we're not going into that fight or flight mode. You're not, you're, you're you're not going to go, you're not going to fight where this is what we're about to do. Hmm. And what a difference between her and the gentleman you had to hold. Yep. Now, what about someone dying from kidney failure? Is that typically a painful thing? It can be painful. Um, most of the, the pain is not so much is their kidneys per se. I mean, it can be, but it's more, it depends on, it depends on why the failure is happening. Like some people will have, now if you're talking about someone who's on dialysis and they, cause they're on kidney failure and they're on dialysis and they have to get there, you know, it's, it's more like they're, it's the edema that, because they can't filter out any of the water because they're, you know, out of their system. So it's the edema that causes them to swell up. They have, then they end up with high levels of of, um, ammonia that eventually gets into their brain, causing them confusion and, and everything. Um, So, I mean, there's a lot of things that happens when you're, someone's in kidney failure, as opposed to someone who's in kidney failure, because there's an obstruction there, um, such as cancer or, you know, some kind of blockage or something like that. Um, it, it's the same, the same thing happens to them as well, but the cancer is what at times caused them a lot of the pain. Um, I've never known anyone with kidney failure who was on dialysis that say that they were in pain. It's more of, it's the edema, it's the, it's the swelling and the pneumonia levels that happens when they are confused and, and everything. So is there medication that can neutralize that at all 
to make not, it more comfortable? Keep them comfortable, yes. Um, you know, usually they start them on morphine at five milligrams at every hour or 10 milligrams every hour, depending upon the symptoms. Because basically the medication is for symptom control. Um, if they're having uncontrolled symptoms and they can't, I guess, meditate it through, <laughs> meditate through it. But yeah, but it's, it's, it's the medications is for symptom control. And I know that there's a lot of um, myths about hospice, not myths, but like a lot of people are very apprehensive and hospice has a lot of, gets a bad rap from people because they think that, oh, once they go on hospice, they can start, they, you're going to start them on morphine and then they're dead in like three days. And that's not the case, you know, um, with hospice. It's, hmm. you, it just means that you have enough comorbidities or enough illnesses on there to, to make you qualify for hospice, but you don't, you don't have to be on morphine. You don't have to be on, you don't have to be on those meds. Case in point, my first story, she was not on any meds. And that, she was probably in pain, but she, she yeah. chose peace over pain. She chose peace over pain. Yep. Yep. So there's gotta be all sorts of stories of, of, of people that you meet who aren't comatose. They're you know, they're, they're going through the process. It takes weeks, if not months, you know, you told me of recently you had a patient who was like a hundred years old Yeah, <laughs> and he's yeah. all messed up and he's just like, wants to die. Yeah. He wants to die. He, <laughs> he's, um, he's like, why am I still here? Like that, that's, he's like this grumpy, grumpy man. He's like, why am I still here? You know, I'm like, I don't know why you're still here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> everybody's gone, you know, that he's was close with. Right. And so it's like, even, even his know. doctors are dead. Probably. Right. Right. And he has a brand new doctor who's like probably old enough to be, you know, like young enough to be his grandchild or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he, yeah, he's, um, he only has, um, a few family members left, you know, and it's, he is kind of, you know, he gets, I know it's cause he's lonely, you know, and I know that's what it is. And we're like the highlights of his day coming in there to visit him. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but he, he struggles with, he struggles with living on the earth. When I go there to visit him, he's always like, why am I not dead yet? You know, why I, I, I want to die. <laughs> and it's not even like he's, he's not joking about, either. No, he's not joking, but he's depressed about not dying. You know what I mean? But not, it's not like he, he, and, and I don't want people to, to take it as, oh, he has some suicidal thoughts or, and no, he's just ready to go. Like he's been, his heart's been beating on this earth for over a hundred years. Like, and he, all he does is basically sleep, you know? And, and he's just like, and he says that all I do is sleep. And you know, all I do is sleep. I said, what do you have? Is, is he capable of walking around and stuff? No, no, <sighs> not on his own. Now on his own, he has to be transferred all the time. Transferred, you know, his body's old. He's not a young 100 year old man. He's a pretty old 100 year old man. Hmm. So, I mean, he's, you know, he, he has issues with, you know, but there was one thing that he said to me, he, he says that he, he wants to, he calls dying, getting on with life. Right. 
Nice. <laughs> I'm just, I just want to get on with my life. And I, when he used to say that to me, I was like, you're a hundred years old. What do you need to get out? He goes, I'm talking about dying. I want to die. I want to just, I just, you know, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of being stuck in this chair. I want to, I want to, I want to walk again. So in his mind, mm. because he's on this earth right now, he's not walking, but he feels like when he dies, he's going to be able to walk. But he won't I, have to depend on anyone. I think, I think it's a lesson of impermanence because like you said, he, he, all the people that he had years and years with are gone. Mm-hmm. And that just shows you how dare I use the word futile everything mm-hmm. is. It's like, and I, I say this all the time, like I, I use Alexander the Great as an example. I mean, the guy accomplished more than probably any human being who ever walked earth and his empires are gone. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're not, <laughs> like, <laughs> they're gone. Yeah. All that work to conquer almost the whole world. Yeah. Gone. It's gone. And then many years later, Rome came mm-hmm. and Rome ruled and it's gone. And now it's the United States. And you have to assume at some point it'll be gone. It'll be gone. Mm-hmm. And so these are empires that last centuries. And we're just humans that last a hundred years if we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And it's like everything passes us by. Yeah. And we're, you know, it's like, who's going to remember you? Your kids are going to remember you. Your friends are going to remember you. But in a second, they're going to be gone too. Right. And then <laughs> anyone after them is there, they may have some memory of you, but they're not. No. And then after that, no one will ever remember who you are. No. I, I you know, my last grandparent died when I was 17. Mm. I don't have clear memories of my grandparents. Wow. Yeah. You know, and definitely not their parents. Yeah. And so everything fades away and it's like, we're creating sandcastles mm-hmm. and the wind and the sea is going to come and wipe that out. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so what's another story she was in her 90s and she couldn't understand how she went all those years and then hit age 90 and end up with cancer it was doctors wanted her to do treatment for it and all that stuff and she was like no She says, I'm 90 years old. She says, and I'm looking for quality of life, not quantity. Right. Because she would rather live out her days, you know, feeling pretty okay, you know, rather than her going through treatments and feeling sick all the time just to get those few extra years, but those few extra years, she's going to be sick. And she felt like the treatments would have killed her anyway. She was like, I'm 90 some odd years old. Of course, the treatments are going to kill me. So what happened? 
She opted for quality, not quantity. Did she get real sick? Um, she did. And her only thing that she wanted to do was that summer she wanted to go to the beach and eat lobster and drink a margarita. Okay. And we made that happen. Okay. And she thought that that was the best thing ever that happened to her that year. (sighs) Eating, eating, all she wanted to do was eat a lobster on the beach with a margarita. Okay. So we took a field trip. How long did it take for her to die after that beach? Not long. She was gone in a week. And now let me tell you, she was walking when we got her to the beach. She was walking. And then the next day, she couldn't get out of bed. Wow. And so how, how was her transition? Um, her transition was okay. It wasn't, it wasn't bad. Um, she pretty much was stated. She, her, her family opted to give her meds. And so she stayed pretty much in control, but they didn't have to, she, she didn't have to get medicated every hour though. Every few hours that she was, that they medicated her that they thought that she was in pain or they thought that she was, her respirations were getting, you know, a little elevated. So they would, but they, they, they barely used the bottle. Of oxygen. Of morphine. Morphine. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. She didn't actually, she didn't actually go on oxygen. She didn't need it. When you say the oxygen levels get elevated. No. So it'd be like, not the oxygen levels, it'd be like the other vital signs that gets elevated, like blood pressure, respirations. It's the respirations that get elevated. Okay. Yeah. And respirations is the number of breaths you take per minute. Right. And the, the, the finger monitor, right? Yeah. The pulse ox. (laughs) So pulse oximeter. You can have rapid deep breaths. Like a hyperventilation. Yeah. And that's an automatic body response. That's the automatic, the automatic body response. That's what your brain is telling your body that you have to do in order for you to survive. Cause it's, it's now starting to starve for oxygen. And you can do something to medicate. Alleviate, mm-hmm. alleviate the, the elevated respirations. Yeah. And that just makes them more comfortable. Yep. So we think. I can say it makes their respirations go down, suppress. When they're when they're transitioning, like I mean, that minute, that moment, does the breath? No, not all the time. Like so, when they're transitioning, when we say someone is transitioning, that means that person becomes unresponsive. They're not. They're no longer eating. No longer talking. The active dying phases is all the symptoms that we see in the actively dying person, like the respirations sometimes are elevated, they're shallow. Um, if they're comfortable, they can be slow and shallow. So though that's it goes from transition to actively dying. There's like there's a difference. Some people use it interchangeably, but I don't. Okay. Transitioning to me is. They're, they're, the body per, is preparing itself for the actively dying phase. Mm. So I, the body has to rest first because it takes a lot of energy to start act. It takes a lot of energy to actively die. 
which is why the respirations get elevated. Sometimes the heart rate is elevated. Sometimes they're sweating. So how do you go on with your regular life when you have to deal with this all the time? <laughs> yeah. You know, you, um, someone dies, you come home, watch Netflix. I mean, how is kind of like that? It's kind of like that. Like, you know, I, I, you know, every day when I see my, all my patients, I, I'm watching them die slowly. I see the changes. I see the decline, you know? I have to tell them, but sometimes they know it. They can feel it. They can see it. You know, the family members can see it sometimes. Um, the, the patients themselves can feel it. They can see it too, mm. you know, but I watch them and then I come home and I have my kids. Sometimes I just watch my shows or clean up my house. I, I, I have a regular life <laughs> outside of, <laughs> hospice you know I still have to I still have to live on this earth until I'm no longer needed here right so I still have to take care of my responsibilities here absolutely so well I I hope that listeners are motivated to take up meditation if they haven't yet mm -hmm. it's definitely it's something that definitely I think everyone should do it I'm, I'm guilty of not um consistently doing it. Um, I honestly wish that I started earlier in my life um, doing it, like at least in my 30s and my 20s, somewhere, maybe late, maybe mid 30s. I wish that I could have started it then, you right, know, right. now I'm like creeping up to the big five. Oh, <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, so now it's like, you know, then I have an 11 year old that I have to chase behind. So she they, they that don't make it any easier for me to be able to sit back and meditate. Right. So, but I know now that I have times and spaces in between. So, all right, Keisha, this, this has been a good talk. Yeah. Where can somebody stop in to say hello to you? Uh, Instagram, perhaps? Yes, they can stop it on my Instagram page. Um, my Instagram page is actually, it is open to the public. It's not closed off. So and my handle is at <laughs> a unicorn among horses. I wonder where that you got that from. <laughs> <laughs> That's in my first book, Diet and Stress I Detox. know. I, 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 um, I took a liking to it. So I, I took it and I've been. Should I should have trademarked it. <laughs> I know you should have, but it's okay. Yeah. But at least it's somebody you know, right? That right. has the name and Absolutely. Right. It's not some random person that never unicorn met you or never horses. saw you. Yeah. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so it's at a unicorn among horses. All right, Keisha. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.